You're listening to the audio version of the Frontline documentary, America's Great Divide, From Obama to Trump. Here is episode six. Using conflict and outrage, Donald Trump had galvanized an angry base and won over the reluctant Republican establishment. But a tabloid crisis would test how much they would take and how far he could go. Former campaign CEO, Steve Bannon. That day, we're up in the 25th floor conference room, and it's Friday afternoon, about 2 o'clock, and all of a sudden, Hope Hicks shows up outside the glass thing, and she's giving me the signal. And so I step out, and I go out, and I read this thing. She's got this transcript, and she's like about to cry. She goes, oh, this is terrible. Breitbart's Steve Bannon had signed on as the CEO of Trump's campaign. I said, what are you so upset about? What is this? And I said, well, the Washington Post is going to publish a story in an hour. And I go, what's so bad about it? And she goes, well, look at it. She says, I'm grabbing by the And I go, oh, maybe I haven't focused on that. So I look down and go, oh, OK, OK. I've got to use some Tic Tacs just in case they start kissing. Bannon, Hicks, a top aide, and other members of the Trump team watched it online. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the I can do anything. <laughs> like, whoa, boom, that thing hits, and we're sitting in the conference room. And, and on video, I didn't quite realize it was audio and video. In video, it's pretty powerful, so everything shuts down. Donald Trump caught on tape in his own words, vulgar words, boasting about being able to grab women by their genitals and get away with it because he's a star. Former campaign manager Kellyanne Conway. So after the Access Hollywood tape, our poll numbers took a hit. And some national polls had us down to 35%, her at 48. That's with one month ago exactly. NBC reporter Katie Turr. In the audio, you can hear Trump talk about a married woman he tried to have sex with and how he behaves with women that he's attracted to. The Trump campaign is in full damage control mode following a troubling story. I thought that was probably it for Trump. Former Fox News anchor Megyn Kelly. It was stunning. I mean, it was stunning just to hear, you know, a major party nominee talk that way about any group, never mind my own, right, women. Um, it was jarring. It was very jarring. The Trump camp has swiftly launched into disaster. A big, big development in this campaign as it comes. This was the October surprise. Former campaign advisor Corey Lewandowski. Had the ability to take down a campaign and the internal discussion amongst the campaign some were, you need to apologize immediately, and some were, you need to uh, double down. A damage control team gathered. Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie, Kellyanne Conway, Bannon. Steve Bannon. You know, it's Rudy and Christie, and all the traditional politicians are saying it's over, and you got to, you know, Trump's going around and saying, give me your percentage, and what do I do? And they're all like, you know, 0%, 20%. I go, it's 100%. And he goes, I said, listen, they don't care. This is locker room talk. They don't care about vulgarity and like that. They care about their losing their jobs. They're losing their country. They see their country going away from them. The Republican establishment began to defect. <laughs> he's, he's in a bad mood, OK? Now we've got a full revolt. Pence is nowhere to be found. He's not out there saying great. He gives him, you know, we get a letter from him. Paul Ryan's out of the campaign, McConnell's out, because they thought they're gonna lose the Republican Party. They thought every woman in America will never vote for a Republican again, right? Because this guy's a barbarian. 
This is a political disaster, no doubt Donald Trump's campaign, its worst crisis ever. PBS NewsHour reporter Yamiche Sindar. And you see so many Republicans denounce Trump, even though he is the Republican nominee and there's not going to be someone else to emerge. The, the Republicans are basically saying, whatever, give it to the Democrats. The traditional rules of politics called for an abject apology. I've never said I'm a perfect person, nor pretended to be someone that I'm not. I've said and done things I regret, and the words released today on this more than a decade-old video are one of them. But then he would reframe the crisis on his own terms, us versus them. Bill Clinton has actually abused women, and Hillary has bullied, attacked, shamed, and intimidated his victims. And soon the base let him know they had gotten the message. There's literally this mob down there. And he goes, look, at, there's my people. Trump just walks out there. They were on his side. They liked the conflict, the fight. He will never apologize. He punches, and then he punches harder, and then he doubles down, and he refigures, and then he punches again. He is never someone that's going to say, I made a mistake or I apologize. He will never back down. And the very next day, just before the presidential debate, Bannon had a plan to keep the conflict going. We didn't tell anybody. Trump didn't know about it. We're in the presidential suite at the hotel, walk up, and Trump, as often would do, would kind of lean back and almost close his eyes and say, OK, here's what we got. We, we got Paula Jones and all the women that, that, that Clinton assaulted. Then you're going to sit in the middle. We're going to open the door, and they're going to come in, and we're going to hit them, OK? And, he, and I'm sitting there. I'm making my pitch, right? He goes, I go, what do you think? He goes, I love it. <laughs> They spirited him down the freight elevator, put him in a conference room, and opened the doors to an unsuspecting press corps. Katie Turr, NBC News. Next thing I know, and no one in the press knew this was happening, there was a press conference with all Bill Clinton's accusers right before the debate. These four very courageous women have asked to be here, and it was our honor to help them. There was widespread shock. Nobody had it beforehand. Mr. Trump may have said some bad words. Juanita Broderick. But Bill Clinton raped me, and Hillary Clinton threatened me. I don't think there's any comparison. They were allegations the Clintons had long denied, but it didn't matter to Bannon and Trump. They were sowing more chaos. New York Times TV critic James Ponowazic. What's the point to all of this? It doesn't make Donald Trump or what he was caught on tape saying any better but it just creates a lot of confusion and chaos. Megyn Kelly. Even though it felt dirty and you felt kind of gross when you watched the whole thing unfold, it was effective. It reminded all of us that the woman who would go into office if he lost was no saint either. Not Hillary herself necessarily, but her husband. And with her enabling, really, it must be said. Okay, thank you all very much. We appreciate it. Mr. Trump, you touch women without their consent. Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, why did you say you touch women without consent, Mr. Trump? Paula Jones. Why don't y'all ask Bill Clinton that? Why don't y'all go ask Bill Clinton that? Go ahead and ask Hillary as well. Steve Bannon. It was perfect, and it was that that, that got us momentum. That gave us the velocity 
That gave us the muzzle velocity to kind of drive home in the last, you know, five, four or five weeks of the campaign. Author and journalist Matt Bai. It's a, it, it was a show. First of all, it took some of the attention away from Trump. What he's really good at in a, in a fight uh, is muddying the, muddying the waters, muddying the truth, muddying the focus to the point where everybody just says, ah, it's a wash. He's done this with the media for years. They say this about me, it's not, I say this, you know, people don't trust the media, people don't trust Trump. He knows that in the end they kind of throw up their hands and say you deserve each other, and that's fine with him. President thing doesn't work out. I would love to see a reality show where Donald Trump and Billy Bush just travel around the country in a bus. Take a tic-tac and grab him by the is the closest thing to a plan Donald Trump has described this entire election. I don't think that's what Donald Trump's advisors meant when they told him to reach out to women. On election night, Trump's divisive campaign paid off. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. The most unreal. The base, energized, narrowly put him over the top. In an electoral college victory that virtually no one saw coming a year ago, a few months ago, a week, even a month ago, <laughs> even yesterday. Megyn Kelly. Whoa, everyone got this wrong. I mean, 1% of the pollsters and the prognosticators called this, and everyone else was wrong, and this is a huge story. What problem are we going to see? Donald Trump has broken the rules. Of there was a kind of prejudice against Trump. Former Obama strategist David Axelrod. A kind of incredulity in uh, the parlors of Washington and New York and uh, Los Angeles. Somehow this guy who was so coarse and so uh, blatantly exploiting race and division could actually win. How unpredictable the new terrain here in Washington is. It speaks how deeply divided our nation is. Washington Post reporter Wesley Lowry. You have two candidates received tens of millions of votes, a race that's separated by just a handful of votes in a handful of states. They care about Donald Trump. They like that guy. They want him to be the president. And they want to beat the Democrats. Crooked Hillary. The creation of a new reality. It's going to be an earthquake, an unraveling of this system, or even a revolution. Our president Trump is very much a wild card. I don't think any of us thought he was going to win. Former Trump advisor, Anthony Scaramucci. When he wins, if people are being brutally honest, there was a level, a large measure of disbelief. Is this our yeah. new normal? Is the reason for the sheer unpredictability of a President Donald Trump? Former campaign advisor David Bossie. Even for him, it was a, a, a little of an overwhelming feeling to see yourself be elected President of the United States and realize that you're going to be the next commander-in-chief, the next leader of the free world. It's a humbling, humbling thing. 2016 changed the face of American politics forever. After a polarizing campaign, he would need an acceptance speech to signal to the country, to an anxious Wall Street and the world. of disruption coming to Washington. What kind of president he would be. Anthony Scaramucci. I remember calling him on his cell phone when the futures were down. Bloomberg was reporting that the stock futures were down 600 as a result of his 
victory. And I remember saying to him, hey, we got to put some stuff in there that are sensitizing to the market so let people know things are going to be okay. But Steve Bannon didn't want things to be okay. He went to work on a speech that would emphasize division, give the base what it wanted. I start working on it like at, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning. It was go to Washington and we're gonna burn out the permanent political class. We're gonna take a torch to the enemy, okay? That it was fire breathing. But having won, Trump wavered. He would sound uncharacteristically conciliatory. Now it's time for America to bind the wounds of division. Have to get together. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. You never see the Trump Victory Night speech ever replayed, because it's just not Trump. It's not a, it's kind of like, let's have a group hug. For those who have chosen not to support me in the past, of which there were a few people, I'm reaching out to you for your guidance and your help so that we can work together and unify our great country. I said, no, 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 no. We didn't win an election to bring the country together. It's not time to bring the country together. It's time to take on the elites in this country, take the torch to them, hit them with a blowtorch. I love this country. Thank you. Thank you very much. I saw him not only then, but after he returned to Trump Tower that night. Former Republican strategist Sean Spicer. And the weight of the election, the, uh, the processing of recognizing what was about to happen was clearly going through. Um, his mind at that time. You could, you could see how profound the moment was. I think there was a little bit of shock uh, uh, there, a moment of vulnerability. He said he was literally going to act more presidential than Abraham Lincoln. I mean, we laughed, but he meant it seriously. You know, he, he was going to dial back on Twitter, dial up on presidential nature, if you will. In his next public appearance, it was toned down Trump again, in the Oval Office. No sign of the brutal divisiveness that had gotten him there. Well, I just had uh, the opportunity to have an excellent conversation with President-elect Trump. Dan Balls, Washington Post. To see the two of them in the Oval Office was kind of the, you know, the final moment of how in the world did this happen and, and what have we just gone through? Been very encouraged by the I think interest in President-elect President uh, Trump's, uh, I believe that it is important Trump for all of us. Trump is totally disinterested in the gravity of the job he's walking into. Just doesn't care, you know. Ben Rhodes was one of Obama's closest aides. You know, I think for Obama, it was like a gut punch. Obama's seeing this meeting as an opportunity. I need to tell him about all these things, you know, how healthcare works in this country, North Korean threat, what's going on with Iran. And Trump is totally disinterested in any of this. Um, didn't even care. In front of the cameras, the reality TV star smiled and tried out his new role. And, uh, we were just going to get to know each other. We had never met each other. Uh, I have great respect. Uh, the meeting lasted for 
almost an hour and a half. And it could have, as far as I'm concerned, it could, could have gone on for a lot longer. The Donald Trump who came to the Oval Office on November 10th, two days after Election Day, seemed like a very different Donald Trump. Author and journalist Michael Cranish. He spoke very respectfully of President Obama, who he had questioned whether he was a legitimate president to the birther issue, but here he was saying he greatly admired President Obama. So for someone who's just heard Trump talk in the campaign, it seemed like an out-of-body experience. And I look forward to being with you many, many more times in the future. Thank you, sir. Journalist Molly Ball. And there was an idea for a brief moment uh, that he was about to pivot. He was about to be, quote unquote, presidential. He would show us all that he was capable of, of, of uniting America and speaking to everybody at once. But before long, the anger, resentment, conflict that had put Donald Trump in power would return. It erupted after one decisive meeting. Between the that day, the powerful leaders of the intelligence community arrived at Trump Tower. They came, evidence in hand, to convince the president-elect the Russians really had interfered in the election. For what could be a day of fireworks here at Trump Tower. Author and journalist Susan Glasser. He came to identify the question of the Russian intervention in the election as a questioning of his own election as president. And so he, from the very beginning, refused to treat this in the way that I think any other president would have, which is as a serious attack uh, on the U.S. and its election integrity, but chose to view it in very personalized terms. The officials say they'll present him with classified material. And it only got more personal. After the briefing, FBI Director James Comey spoke to Trump privately. Matt Apuzzo, New York Times. Comey pulls the president aside and he tells him, hey, listen, uh, I need you to know that there's this, what we now call the dossier. The dossier, unverified and sensational allegations prepared by a former British spy, partially paid for by the Democrats. It was political dynamite. Russian regime has been cultivating, supporting, and assisting Trump for at least five years. Jane Mayer, The New Yorker. It's full of things that may be able to allow the Russians to blackmail him. It has information about him involved in perverted sexual acts. To exploit Trump's personal obsessions and sexual perversion in order to obtain suitable compromise, compromising material on him. After the meeting, the president-elect was furious. Author and journalist Michael Isakoff. Trump is talking to his top aides, and he views this as blackmail. It's a shakedown, he tells them. His assumption is that Comey is giving this to him to show him that he's got something on him. Then news of the briefing leaked. This is CNN Breaking News. CNN has learned that the nation's top intelligence officials provided information to President-elect Donald... There's the controversial move by BuzzFeed last night, publishing a dossier... Before long, the entire dossier was online. But they have been detailed by numerous media outlets, including BuzzFeed... Trump's chief strategist, Steve Bannon, told the President-elect he knew what was going on. Bannon himself had used Breitbart to wage harsh right-wing attacks. 
now, Bannon said, the mainstream media was going after Trump. This is what scumbags the mainstream media are and how gutless they are. Buzzfeed, Buzzfeed, the standard of excellence in journalism in our country, prints the dossier with the link. And I said, here it goes, because in the New York Times, Washington Post, like, it's up, bang, 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 bang. They're reporting this was given to the president, right? He wasn't even president, and already Trump was under siege. Author and journalist Howard Kurtz. The president-elect must have concluded that the press was going to be an adversarial confrontational force, even before he took office, and that the press had sources that could undermine him, sources that knew what he was doing, even if he was privately meeting with the FBI director. Uh, I think that set the tone for what was to follow. Now it was back to what Trump did best. At a press conference the very next day, he gave his base what they had come to expect. He attacked. I think it was uh, disgraceful, disgraceful, that the intelligence agencies allowed any information that turned out to be so false and fake out. Former advisor J.D. Gordon. He expresses frustration. He knows it's a setup. He knows it's a plot to destroy him and people around him. And that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. I think it's a disgrace. John Cassidy, The New Yorker. Trump. I think because of the dossier and the leak of the dossier, he was so furious that he just came out and lashed out at everybody. And I think that sort of set the tone for the entire administration, to be honest. That information that was false and fake and never happened got released to the public. I think that was a signal to everybody, certainly to me and the rest of the media, that this was the Trump we were going to get in the White House. That it wasn't going to be any sort of a reset. It was going to be the angry, same, the same Trump that was out there in the campaign, campaign trail. Trump made it clear the press was the enemy. You are attacking no, our news not organization. You. Not you. Can you give us a chance? Your organization. You are attacking our news organization. Can you give us a chance to ask a question, sir? Go ahead. Sir, can Quiet. you state, Mr. President-elect? Go ahead. Can you state categorically, Mr. President-elect? Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. Attacking us. He then deployed a weapon designed to undermine the media. A catchphrase. Can you, can you, stay you are fake Former news. Conservative Sir, radio host and author Charlie Sykes. It was really extraordinary watching Donald Trump take fake news, the term fake news, and adopt it as his own critique of the media. He has created this alternative reality that allows him to dismiss or discredit anything that is negative while pushing his own narrative. But I will tell you, some of the media outlets that I deal with are fake news more so than anybody. I could name them, but I won't bother, but you have few sitting right in front of us. Uh, so they're very, very dishonest people. Dan Balls, Washington Post. He used it as a way, again, to divide the country, to energize his supporters, uh, and, and to cast himself as somebody who is under siege by, you know, uh, an establishment or an elite whose interests are counter to the people who elected Donald Trump, and frankly, very effectively done. Uh, it's all fake news. It's phony stuff. It didn't happen. GOP pollster Frank Luntz. He's a brilliant marketer, and he knew that with the drop in credibility of the media and the increase in skepticism and cynicism from the public, that he was able to get away with much more. He was able to say things that no other president had said and to be able to challenge the press directly. 
that this uh, fake news was indeed fake. Sir, you did not answer. Sir, you did not answer whether any of your associates were in contact with the Russians. CNN's Jim Acosta. You did not answer. You did not answer whether any of your associates were in contact with the Russians. Can you categorically deny that did not happen, sir? Can you categorically deny that did not happen, sir? As he took the oath of office, Donald Trump made no pretense of seeking unity or healing. He spoke directly to his base. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. He framed the conflict, us versus them. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. Author and journalist Ronald Brownstein. He very much made accentuating the divide part of his campaign strategy, and even more incredibly, part of his governing strategy. I think he is the first president who arrived explicitly uh, understanding and, and even uh, seeking to speak only to his base. But that very day, he would be confronted by the other side of the divide. We're waiting for, and they got their moment. And I have to tell you, uh, we are just passing Trump Hotel. We did pass protesters, so you could hear the din of the people. Here next, right across the street from the hotel, there is a huge group of protesters combined with supporters, and they've been very vocal, and we've seen a few flare-ups. It looks like they're going back to the car. So, Lester, there is a change of plans now. It was a sign of the anger also deepening on the left. The mood that day went from peaceful protests to standoffs. violent provocation. By the next day, Hundreds of thousands of peaceful protesters overwhelmed Washington. The resistance will be televised live from Washington, D.C. One of the largest single-day protests in American history, speaking out against Donald Trump just one day after he took office. Judy Woodruff, PBS NewsHour. The day after the inauguration, there were more people who showed up on the National Mall in Washington for the Women's March than there had been the day before when a new president was inaugurated. Dan Balls. When you had the Women's March and the hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets, in Washington, in cities around the country, in places around the world, there was an energy created by his election that energy began to course through the political system. And you could see that with the Women's March. 
there will be a debate about the size of the crowd. Uh, these protesters saying that they're going to have a bigger crowd here today than Donald Trump had of his supporters for the inaugural yesterday. We'll let that debate play out. The protests, the women, then the breaking point. The news about the size of the crowd at his inauguration. Former President Obama on the left and Trump's inauguration were there on the right with far fewer spectators. Literally from the exact same vantage point, showing a big difference in the size of the crowd. There were big holes in the crowd, so those are the comparisons right there. Paling in comparison to President Obama's. Take a look at that exact same image from today. I was, we saw a lot fewer, we saw fewer people. Visually at least, it was smaller. I think it's safe to say there was light turnout. New York Times TV critic James Ponowazek. Donald Trump is, is a TV guy. He has always been concerned with his ratings and with numeric values of winning versus losing. So the notion of having a, a smaller crowd than somebody else uh, just eats at him. On their first day in the White House, press aide Cliff Sims saw Trump's frustration up close. Within the first you know, five minutes that I'm in the building, there's this kind of crisis moment. There was a lot of reporting that the inaugural crowds for him were not as big as the inaugural crowds for Obama. That is the equivalent for Donald Trump of a schoolyard fight. So they were really coming after him, uh, hitting him where it hurts. Peter Baker, New York Times. And he starts insisting that's not true. We have the biggest crowd ever. He tells Sean Spicer's press secretary, you go out there and tell them that. And it sets the tone. It sets the tone from the beginning. You know, this is not about healing. This is not about bringing people together. Former Trump aide Cliff Sims. Sean, first day on the job, is thinking to himself, here's my chance to kind of show I'm tough. I'm going to punch back 10 times harder than they hit us. Let's figure out how to do that. I grab a computer, start, you know, pecking out a statement. This was the statement they drafted. Almost every fact about the crowd size was wrong. We were so caught up in the moment, and Sean's trying to impress the president, and I'm being told facts that end up not being true, which we didn't vet properly. Sean was basically like marching out to his own death there. Good evening. Uh, thank you guys for coming. I know his, at least his credibility's death. Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way in one particular tweet to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. And only a fool would have gone out there kind of half-cocked the way that we did, and we were those fools. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. Former Even GOP strategist Steve Schmidt. When he goes out and says, this is the biggest crowd size of A misrepresentation of the crowd. And what he's saying, in essence, is what's true is what the leader says is true. The obliteration of the line between truth and the lie is fundamental to grasp because it's so elemental to a functioning democracy. And the degradation of those institutions is a weakening of our system. Did you lie on his behalf? No. Never. No. There were plenty of times when, um, look, you, your your job, you may not go go full on it, but I, I don't think that that's your. I think I, I the job of the press secretary is to articulate what the principal wants articulated, uh, not what you want. You're not there to call balls and strikes and interpret. That's what you guys should be writing and covering, instead of sowing division about tweets 
and and false narratives. I will see you on Monday. Dan Balls. What we learned in those first days of the Trump presidency was the degree to which Donald Trump was going to insist on trying to write the history of his presidency the way he wanted to. That if you spoke for Donald Trump, you had a constituency of one, and that was Donald Trump. Kellyanne Conway. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains Alternative facts? Alternative facts, four of the five facts he uttered. The hey, one Chuck, thing he why, got hey, right Chuck. was Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not true. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. I mean, the obvious impact is that it's Matt Bai created a tremendously dangerous, unstable force in American life where people don't know what to believe. People have been told they're right not to believe the things they are told by credible sources. The President of the United States has contributed mightily to an environment where people believe what they want to believe, and that is going to have long-term repercussions. Trump didn't let it go. The fight over crowd size resonated with his base and the us versus them war he was waging. Before we leave, the president tells us he wants to show us just one more image. One thing this shows is how far over they go here. Look, look how far this is. This goes all the way down here, all the way down. Nobody sees that. You don't see that in the pictures. But when you look at this tremendous sea of love, I call it a sea of love, it's really something special. Judy Woodruff. It really did become emblematic of, of what the Trump presidency was to, to be, in that nothing was accepted at face value. Uh, it was kind of a warning sign that um, not to take your eye off this ball, because it's going to be different from now on, and it has been. focused on the size of his crowds, the size of his ratings, the size of his hands, the size of, well, everything. And either that's a lot of empty space, or that crowd is even wider than I thought. You just couldn't see Trump's crowd because they were wearing polar bear skins.